Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Constantine Carbaliotis, Privacy Council at Innovation, and we'll be talking about Canadian data privacy regulations, the history of regulation in Canada, and what it all means for companies doing business in Canada. Constantine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here uh, for the actually the all Canadian edition of Partially Redacted. Uh, we're both Canadians and we're talking about Canadian data privacy today. But maybe before we get there, how about we start off with an introduction? Who are you? You know, what do you do, and how did you get up, uh, or how did you get to where you are today? Long convoluted story. I practiced law uh, for many years. I was very involved in technology and um, was better known actually for you know my work in law and technology than I was for things I was doing in law. I ultimately moved to consulting. So unlike many lawyers, I have done something other than practice law. Um, and so from there, I got assigned to be a privacy manager on a privacy related on a project. And from there, haven't looked back. So I've been doing privacy for 20 years. Um, I, I moved from where I was consulting to I led the privacy program at Symantec. I was then chief privacy officer at Mercer and then went to work for a couple of years at PwC. And now I'm with Innovation LLP, which is a boutique um, privacy and data protection firm based in Ottawa and Toronto. Excellent. And so you've been in the space for, for 20 years, you said. How has, I guess, like from your perspective, things changed in that time from how companies are essentially thinking about and prioritizing privacy? Um, well, I would say it's gone from somewhat being a prophet in the wilderness to, um, you know, now everybody's beginning to get that this stuff is important. Uh, particularly at the beginning where they're, you know, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what fines, you know, apply under Canadian federal privacy law. They were never substantial. In fact, um, they've, you know, most of the power of the privacy commissioner's office has been in the, uh, shall we say, moral suasion or, you know, potentially name and shame sort of um, categories. Notwithstanding that, they've done a significant amount of, um, you know, work in terms of influencing the world. And I'll, I'll talk about a bit about that. But what's changed is, um, you know, it was from a conversation of, oh, what's the potential fine? That's a horrible conversation to have, you know, it's like, really, um, to really understanding that that's part and parcel of doing business today. Um, that, you know, security and privacy is much like plumbing, try to live without it. Um, you know, and, and even more than regulation, which we'll talk about, consumer expectations are a huge driver now today for um, how companies have to uh, respond to, again, expectations. Partly that's um, the fault of our friends in Europe because GDPR came into effect. You may recall in 2018, everyone on the planet got spammed with messages saying, can we keep writing to you? And then, you know, suddenly everybody became very educated about their privacy rights, you know? Um, so suddenly, you know, there's a greater awareness in the among consumers and uh, concern. There's a greater, uh, I think, awareness and concern among legislators. Um, and companies today know that they have to do something. And the question is, um, do they take that up themselves or do they wait for the legislative hammer to fall? 
So the change, the change is there. It's still, I would say there's still some resistance, you know, but um, unlike in the past when I would say I was in privacy and people go piracy, you're in piracy. I'd have to say, no, 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 not that. <laughs> privacy. <laughs> so. I see. So it sounds like that there's been this shift essentially from these questions focused on, you know, what is, you know, what is the fine or what is the cost to this being a priority for business and, Based on what you said, my understanding is part of the catalyst of that was the introduction of GDPR. And essentially now there's this consumer expectation and also consumer awareness that, hey, my, my privacy is important. What are these companies doing with it? And that creates pressure on these companies to take it more seriously. And then how has Canadian privacy regulations evolved over the years? And, you know, obviously a lot of people are familiar, even if you don't really know anything about privacy, you've kind of heard of GDPR, because well, as you mentioned, some of the noise that it of course made and the impact it's had on consumers, but what impact has Canadian privacy regulations had on individuals and organizations? Well, a little history probably is appropriate. Um, when um, the federal privacy law in Canada, the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, PIPEDA, or PIPEDA, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it, um, came into effect really in stages, but mostly by 2002. It was part of the incentive behind it wasn't just Canadian Canadians' privacy, but um, the European Privacy Directive, which was the predecessor to GDPR, had come into effect in, I believe, you know, it was the late 90s, 96, 98 time period. And, you know, the Canadian government was very concerned about our ability to continue doing business with Europe. You know, to even get, you know, passenger information um, received was going to be of concern. Um, the Canadian Standards Association had developed a voluntary code, which was... Um, you know, 10 principles, which the federal government simply glommed onto and added, made part of the law. So it was initially developed by industry, a code. And so that having been done, this was again, in order to facilitate trade with Europe, we uh, were granted an adequacy recognition in 2002 by the European Commission, which meant that um, data could flow freely from the European Union to Canada in the areas governed by PIPEDA um, without the need, for instance, uh, many American companies deal with, which is either standard contractual clauses or formerly, you know, either Safe Harbor, Privacy Shield, both of which have been struck down and are is currently being renegotiated. So I love to tease my our American friends and say, the Europeans think we're adequate. Um, and well, you know, we'll see how long that lasts. Our, our law is long overdue for change, for update, because Europeans have moved on in 2018 passing, you know, enacting GDPR. And our law hasn't fundamentally changed since that you know, period of time. So while it was really out there and regarded highly at the beginning, um, it's showing its age. Um, and so there is expectations that it will change. And currently um, what we have now before uh, in what's called, you know, second reading or before committee in parliament is its replacement um, in uh, what's called the Consumer Privacy Protection Act, CPPA, um, um, under an omnibus bill called C-27, Bill C-27. So that is the attempt to update our legislation. So that sort of brings us up to now in terms of where, you know, sort of our history is in terms of the federal privacy law. Um, 
it's important to know that what PEPIDA actually applies to is not everything. We have a federal system in Canada. And the federal government was being very careful, I think, in its approach to drafting legislation not to step over constitutional limits um, so that it was really within the jurisdiction of the federal government. So the way it works is this. It applies to federal works and undertakings and businesses, or FWBs, as we like to refer to them, um, which includes um, banks, but the things that are set out specifically for the federal government in our constitution or anything that wasn't defined in 1867 because it didn't exist, telecoms, aeronautics. Um, so those areas are definitely under the federal jurisdiction. Okay, then the way PEPITA applies is it governs um, the commercial collection of um information, personal information in the provinces, so long as the province hasn't, in fact, passed a law that's substantially similar. So our federal law steps back if a you know, province passes a um, privacy bill. And so that has happened in relation to Quebec, Alberta, and British Columbia. So their private sector privacy laws govern there. The rest of Canada is under PEPIDA. However, PEPIDA does not apply to the employees of um, provincially regulated businesses. If there is no provincial law, then those provinces don't have privacy laws applying to employees of those organizations. So currently, the only provinces that do have privacy laws that apply to employees are in BC, Alberta, and Quebec. Unless, of course, you're an employee of a federal work undertaking or business, which includes, like I said, the banks or telecoms. Mm -hmm. So there's, it sounds like there's essentially, there's the uh, PEPIDA, which is the federal law. There's also now an update to that that's currently under review. And maybe we can come back and, and talk a little bit about the status and the changes on there. But then there's also a handful of provinces that have provincial laws that kind of fill in some of the gaps that the federal law doesn't actually support. And also, um, well, I mean, it actually ousts the federal law. Okay. To it a certain, it. Yeah. To a certain extent, because again, this is why lawyers are busy. Um, you know, it also, PEPIDA applies concurrently to interprovincial or international data transfers, because that is the federal jurisdiction. So good news, our com commissioners tend to cooperate a lot so that they will often have joint investigations and work together. And most of our laws are based on the same principles. So we don't have a huge variation, I think, in approach, which has been the good thing about the way that the commissioners have applied privacy principles. Um, also worth noting is that many Canadian provinces have health privacy legislation where they may have been, you know, legislators may be reluctant to pass laws on the private sector. They seem not to have the same issue with regards to health information because everyone cares about health information and its privacy. So most provinces and, and territories have a health privacy you know, regime. That's also have largely been recognized as substantially similar, but the federal government wouldn't presume to legislate in that area anyways. I see. And the update that's being worked on or proposed mm -hmm to Pepita, what are, what's the status of that? Like when do, what's the general consensus in terms of when that might come into effect? 
Well, that is a really good question because it took a fair while. First of all, it was introduced a couple of years ago as part of the digital charter. And the digital charter was uh, meant to be a suite of you know, laws to um, update um, and promote you know, the use of technology in our economy, but also provide some guardrails, if you will. Um, and in a number of contexts, you know, um, online content, um, artificial intelligence, and of course, privacy. Um, we had an election in the middle of all this because we have, of course, you know, a parliamentary system. We had a minority government. We got a minority government again. So now it was reintroduced as Bill C-27. It's taken a while to actually, after first reading, to get to committee. You know, in our in our parliamentary process, there's first reading, which is when it's introduced to parliament. Second reading, when it's sent to committee. The committee will then have hearings. That's where the real work is done. And then it will be go back for third reading in the House of Commons. And then after that, it gets sent to the Senate, where it repeats that same process. Now, um, so what that all boils down to is um, we don't know quite when they're going to be done with this exercise. Um, but it is conceivable that it could be this year. The federal government, even though, though it's in a minority government still, has proven fairly energetic about getting laws that it wants passed being passed. Um, so um, I would say my hope, you know, is that we'll have some resolution that will know that that's been passed perhaps by the end of the year. That may be a bit optimistic. Um, and then what the minister responsible has said is that there would be an 18-month transition period to get ready to ramp up for the application of that new law, which would be CPPA. So the other components of Bill C-27 are important to note. There's a data protection tribunal that's established to hear appeals and review orders of the privacy commissioners, the office of the privacy commissioner. So it's not that the privacy commissioner can directly do certain things. It has to be, but it's a replacement for what is under PEPITA um, and a, a review by the Federal Court of Canada. Um, it's received some criticism because it doesn't seem to suggest that things will happen quickly in terms of, you know, complaints being acted on. Um, but it's a specialized tribunal, so perhaps it will be better. We, you know, obviously it will depend on the membership and what resources it's given to it to actually, you know, move promptly. Um, there's also a third component, which is important, um, the Artificial Intelligence um, Data Act, um, I may be getting the acronym a little bit off. AIDA is the way it's referred to, which goes, you know, unfortunately to my pet theory that all Canadian privacy laws have to go with the last name Longstocking because always have to seem to be, you know, female names like Pippa, Pepita. Everything makes sense if you add Longstocking to the end. Uh, the only way I can make CPPA makes sense is if we pronounce it as SIPA. So anyway, AIDA is problematic because it has been um, criticized for being too vague and leaving a lot to regulation. So there are some concerns that it could be an, the anchor which um, sinks all of the other efforts. Um, so there is a lot, there was in fact some discussion in Parliament about separating uh, AIDA from the other parts of the legislation in terms of it being enacted, that could still potentially be the recommendation that comes from committee because it might be that AIDA needs some more time and work. 
um, but we don't know yet. And so that's sort of the interesting sort of saga of the, you know, the passage of our legislation and how it may proceed. Um, and of course, all of this is still dependent on us not having an election called in the middle of all of this, which would derail everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the last time. <laughs> so on the, on the current timeline, uh, if an election doesn't interrupt this, you're looking at something like 2025 when CPPA yeah. could potentially go into effect yes. unless it gets, of course, derailed by, by a, an election. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's reasonable. But, you know, what in, what in politics is ever reasonable? So your guess is good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> and then how does the Canadian government actually enforce these types of regulations and what penalties of individuals or organizations, what do they face in terms of noncompliance? So it's not the government itself that does this. It is the Office of the Privacy Commissioner that is given the enforcement responsibility investigation uh, responsibility. Under PIPEDA, there was a limit of a $100,000 fine that could be sought only after application to the federal court, and it has never been successfully used. In fact, the first time that an order was applied for was against Facebook in just in the last two years. That has been one of the criticisms of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, is that there's been requests for more power, but the powers that were available were not being used. One very significant power is the power of audit. They can, you know, and anyone who's been through an audit can know how painful that can be. Um, Even still, the commissioner's office has been remarkably effective without those kinds of enforcement powers. Um, Former privacy commissioner Jennifer Stoddart was successful in bringing both Google and, and Facebook to heel. Um, and, you know, leading international efforts to do so. That's how we got such a great reputation in privacy was, I think, in large part due to the stellar people that we had, both at the federal and and provincial levels, Um, you know, maybe not with a lot of legislated authority, but with tremendous ability to um, get change done despite that. Um, but there's no question that part of, again, we go back to, you know, our adequacy, do our enforcement officials have sufficient powers to actually enforce the law is going to be a question. And it has been, as I said, a criticism that we don't, haven't given them. I go back to my, my earliest comments, you know, my earliest interactions, what's the consequence, what's the fine? Because we know that that does drive companies. And GDPR sort of, you know, created um, a real uh, change in that expectation because, of course, under that law, you can have either 2 or 4% of your global revenue be the calculation for the fine. Um, under C27, the fines can be either 3 or 5%, which is, you know, potentially huge. And, and frankly, I don't think that they've ever gotten to that level in Europe and probably never will in Canada either. It would have to be really egregious to get to those levels. It's more, it gets the attention of the board. You know, you really want people, as with GDPR, to pay attention and start doing the right things. So um, having said that, um, they have led investigations, sometimes jointly with provincial counterparts, sometimes with, you know, counterparts in other countries. Um, So, um, and I'll give you an example, a recent one, where Home Depot was um, getting um, email addresses to send receipts to, but not really fully disclosing that that was actually being uh, given to Facebook for its offline conversion program. 
They stopped doing that in November. The decision was released in February. Again, no fine making ability. They stopped. Um, but it highlighted, you know, in this particular case, you know, they were saying, well, you know, we have this line in our privacy notice that says we could share it with third parties. That was not considered sufficient to get informed consent. And, you know, this is something that the commissioner's office, you know, has spent a lot of time and energy with the provincial counterparts developing thoughts about what is, you know, informed consent. Um, so they backed down on this. They, re, you know, stopped doing that. Um, so that's an example, again, of, you know, the power that the commissioner's office does have to change things. Um, but then again, you know, um, individuals might, you know, well turn around and say, well, what is the consequence for the organization having done this? Um, so there's going to be more fine making ability. It will still be subject to review by this, you know, data protection tribunal. And um, I guess that's to... Um, you know, provide, I, I think, um, a little bit of distance between enforcement and judgment. You know, there's a lot of um, people who like the ombuds role, ombuds person model, you know, that you're not directly involved with, you know, the enforcement it leads you to be able to have conversations with organizations to lead them potentially to a better place. And that has been an important part of the Canadian model. So, um, but like I said, there's been some concerns that this isn't going to make um, the enforcement as effective as it might otherwise be because of the second stage of, you know, review or appeal. Um, so um, the provincial counterparts have abilities to make orders to issue fines as well. Um, it's important to note that Quebec recently updated its law, Bill 64, also known as Law 25. Um, introduced very GDPR-like concepts into its provincial law. And it's staged, and it's coming into, it came, the first staging of it coming into effect was in September of last year. The next will be September this year, and the final tranche in uh, September of 2024. What's required right now out of Quebec? Well, you must have a, per, you, you, the CEO is automatically in charge, responsible for privacy unless they delegate the job. And they still remain responsible ultimately. But this is a bit of a wake-up call for many organizations because they made the CEO responsible for privacy unless they delegate the job. Um, and so the first requirement, set of requirements was basically um, register if you, have, you are using biometrics, but have a, an incident response plan. Why was that so important? Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the Desjardins breach, it affected half the people in Quebec. Desjardins is a uh, financial institution. Um, one of its, uh, I believe, programmers um, got the credentials from two other uh, individuals in IT and was had stolen the data of, I think, well, half the people in Quebec because a lot of people, you know, in Quebec use Desjardins as their financial institution. So. Um, that was settled, I believe, last year. There was a class action. Quebec is one of the places in Canada that has been fairly active in the class action area. It was settled for 200 million Canadian. At one point, the outrage was so great that Quebecers were demanding the federal government change their social insurance numbers, which you can imagine is you no. Know, literally impossible and 
um, and uh, but it, it got a lot of attention, and that's probably why the fines the fines under um, Quebec's law are also four percent potentially, um, you know, two or four percent. And the um, uh, first uh, installment of you know Bill sixty four was you will have an incident response plan. Uh, the next stage, which is this September, is you will have a privacy program. <laughs> you will have all of the ingredients of a privacy program. Um, I don't. I think that's the best way to summarize it. Um, you know, you are going to have to be able to produce that. You're going to have to comply with heightened rules around consent, um, or heightened rules around, um, you know, what you might be or may or may not be able to do with um, data analytics. Um, so GDPR, like, except in that it's missing um, what under GDPR we call legitimate interests. Um, so it remains to be seen how that's going to play, because there are a number of exceptions to the consent uh, under uh, Bill 64, whether they'll be interpreted being wide enough to allow companies some latitude. Um, but um, that's perhaps one of the more significant elements is that it's a very it's written as a very consent heavy law. Um, the final uh, component of Bill 64 will come into play a year from this September, and that provides for data portability. So your ability to take your data to a competitive organization that mirrors a right that exists under GDPR. Hey there, it's Sean, host of Partially Redacted. You probably guessed that since at this point in the interview, you probably recognize my voice. I've been told for years that I have a face for podcasting, but no one has mentioned whether I have a voice for podcasting, so sorry about that. Hopefully, the awesome guest makes up for it. Anyway, if you're enjoying this episode, please support the show by subscribing and telling your friends. You can also join Partially Adapted Community at skyflow.com slash community. Okay, that's enough for me. Back to the show. I think the um, what you mentioned there about the making the CEO <clears throat> responsible or someone that they you know delegate that task to is it's probably huge for you know I think it, it shows that uh, uh, companies need to take this seriously and then also the fact that uh, at some point someone's going to have to have a privacy program and this some of the stem that it sounds like from the Desjardins uh, data breach are there other you know how have essentially other sort of high profile data breaches affected privacy regulations in Canada, you know, is that something that's happening at the federal level beyond just the stuff that's happening in Quebec? There's two elements. I mean, we, Alberta was the only um, place where there was a mandatory breach notification obligation until November, 2018, when it came into effect for the federal government uh, through an amendment to Pepita. What drove that was in fact the target breach. And, you know, it affected Canadian consumers and, you know, people who shopped at, you know, winners and home sense. Um, so that was, but of course, it took a few years, it seems, to for this to actually, you know, percolate into a change, which is the unfortunate sort of aspect of much of this in Canada is it's taking so long. Um, what perhaps was more of a factor, I think, in the thinking behind C27 was not so much a breach as um, the scandal, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And the awareness of the breadth of information and how it could be used. So I think that in looking at C27, I look at this as trying to strike a balance between uh, individual rights and business sensibility, but ultimately making organizations accountable, ultimately, for what they choose to do with information. 
Um, in this, I think we're somewhere between halfway between the United States and Europe in terms of our approach to privacy to try to you know strike that balance. It's also, I think, a factor of maybe how far the federal government feels it can go, again, constitutionally, in terms of its limits, given our federal you know, structure. So, um, but it is, uh, I think, a significant improvement over Pepita. Um, there will be definitely people who question whether it goes far enough. Um, but it requires organizations to have a privacy program written down produce it on demand to the privacy commissioner's office, um, be able to defend the decisions that it makes, you know, the balance, that balancing act between individual rights and um, the use of information for business purposes has to be proportional, has to be reasonable and appropriate. That's the magic language. Um, it's so Canadian, right? You have to be reasonable and appropriate. Um, I like that, and I think that is a strength to it. Again, it will come down ultimately to how uh, the courts interpret that balancing act and where that, you know, side of the scale um, the courts will, you know, ultimately, you know, um, or the Data Protection Tribunal come down on in terms of um, whether it's slightly more towards the personal information protection side or the business flexibility side. Um, but again, it has some constraints. Um, one of the changes between the earlier draft and C27 is it makes all miners' information sensitive. So there is no definition of sensitive information per se. It is an element of, you know, it's a risk-based law. It says, you know, you will apply controls appropriate to the level of risk of the data. So that by making that declaration, all miners' information is inherently sensitive. Therefore, you're going to have to rely on explicit consent, parental consent. You know, do go the extra steps. You won't be able to rely on you know impl implied consent. You know, as as much as you might with an adult. Um, and I think also that um, the accountability to the individual is enhanced. We've always had the right in Canada, um, which. Again, GDPR just really re-educated Canadians about that those rights to know well what do you know about me and you know what are you doing with it and can you please get rid of it. Um, that's enhanced, um, I believe, in terms of the accountabilities for it. More importantly, there are the fines. You know that that's where I think organizations uh, really have to view the data subject request as sort of a pen test of their privacy program. Because that's where you're going to have the greatest likelihood of interaction. The commissioners only have so much time and resources. Individuals, whoever, however, can ask at any point in time, and you have to respond within 30 days, what do I know about you? Why do I have this information? Who have I shared it with? And I think that is going to be um, coupled with fines because it's a complaints going to be a complaints-driven process. Um, will compel organizations to take greater accountability for how they're using personal information. I see. Um, and then, you know, given how long it takes for these types of regulations to uh, come together, get approved, I mean, we're talking about with, uh, you know, CC, CPPA 2025, Assuming that a uh, you know election doesn't happen somewhere in there, how do like the you know fast moving emerging technologies things like 
artificial intelligence. Now there's all this buzz, of course, around generative AI. How can how do those things affect you know Canadian privacy regulations and how how can they even adapt to how fast the technology is moving versus sort of how slow it takes to actually come into effect with these regulations? Well, I think that's partly the rationale behind leaving so much to regulation as opposed to legislation because the you're right you know it, it takes bleeding forever to get a law passed it seems um, regulations can be enacted by an order in council which means a shorter time frame and maybe more flexibility certainly there's more opportunity potentially if it's done right to involve business industry in actually the development of these things so that um, you know what you hope is principles are based in the law and the actual how-to and regulation um, but it does leave organizations concerned because they'd really, you know, in looking at the law, say, well, you know, I don't know, is this going to be sufficient, with, you know, flexible, sufficiently flexible to allow both innovation and the protection of, you know, person, personal data, avoidance of bias, all the things that we care about in artificial intelligence legislation. Um, you know, there's a lot of hype about AI. Everybody's, you know, like I was reading a story in Slashdot that said you don't even need a business plan. You just get money. <laughs> you just say AI. Um, and, um, you know, it almost feels like there's that kind of a rush in legislation to do something because they're recognizing, oh, my gosh, this is like world changing. It is. But, um, you know, reading Hansard in some of the debates just before they sent, you know, um, Bill C-27 to committee, I don't think that many of the people in the House of Commons understand what AI is or what the implications are. It's like, what about AI? Well, what about it? What do you have to say about it, right? Um, so I think that um, it's important that we have that flexibility because we don't want laws to become a drag on innovation and to write things that are so prescriptive Principles-based laws are great, except that they don't tell people sufficiently what to do. And again, laws don't change fast. Not in this country anyways, it seems. So um, maybe anywhere. And so I think that we've got to strike the right balance in, in terms of that flexibility. What companies can do right now <clears throat> is pretty sensible stuff, right? Um, you know, you, you know what privacy impact assessments are, right? You know, you do this before you launch into a new technology. 90% of the time when I see companies screwing up massively, it's because somebody on the left hand said, this is a really cool technology. Let's go to market with it. And then the right hand didn't know that this was actually going to happen or didn't get ahead of it. And they just didn't think through the risks, right? So I've always, in, in, in teaching about this, said a PIA is essentially avoiding sleepwalking into risk. For artificial intelligence, there is this notion of the ethical impact assessment. What are the consequences? And we thought this through. Companies are going to have to be innovative about this because we don't have defined rules right now. But they can still do the right thing. They can still consider this from the point of view of that it may be impossible to explain an algorithm to the average layperson. But maybe you can look at the results and say, is this creepy? Does this concern you? Asking people is also great. You know, what I when I, I blogged recently on, on our firm blog, I said, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, we see marketing people willing to ask individuals almost any kind of question except, how do you feel about this marketing? 
or this use of data. Um, we really need to stop thinking about um, artif you know, the, the uh, echo chamber of our companies, our organizations, um, because in you know even doing a PIA or you know an ethical impact assessment, you can't just simply be talking to people within the organization. You need to go to outside experts. You need to maybe ask the people who would be impacted by these technologies and actually solicit their opinions. I would say that goes a long way to allowing you to be uh, having good defense to any regulator that comes along. We asked, right? We thought about this. We documented it. That's the key thing too, right? A PIA is essentially also a, a defensive mechanism. We might not have gotten all of it right, but we thought about the risks. We made a reasonable effort to mitigate the risks, use the dials that were available to us to make sure that we were able to do what we wanted to do, but we didn't do so at, you know, at the expense of you know, putting people in inordinate danger of their personal information being exposed, or in the case of AI, suffering bias, suffering incorrect conclusions with no means of a remedy. Um, that is an important aspect of both Bill 64 and C27, is that when automated decision-making is relied on, that there's got to be a way to explain it and also a human being to go to. So this has got to be important part of the governance of AI, and I think in privacy in general, that we have that ability to provide that oversight. This is what startups are not really great at, providing governance, right? When you're so excited about building a new technology and going forward and raising funds and you know doing all the cool stuff, uh, it doesn't sound terribly exciting to say we're going to build some governance rules, right? <laughs> but this is now going to become essential to, I think, any startup. If they're hoping to be bought or to get funding, you're going to have to show that you're, you're, not, you're not built on a house on sand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think part of it with you know the history of, of startups and technology companies is you're essentially you're focused on like, hey, we don't even have customers or people using this. So let's focus on that. And once we solve that problem, then we'll come back and maybe address these types of things. But a lot of times it's too late at that point. And there'll be other problems that you're now focused on. So it just, it's like one of those things that just keeps getting pushed, push, push, push until it becomes like a real challenge or like a, a, both a technology challenge and potentially something that, you know, you end up in the newspaper because you, you're part of a breach or a compliance yeah. issue. And, and, you know, from an economic standpoint, I mean, one of the things I've, you know, built privacy programs in two multinationals. And when I was most successful was when um, the people who are architecting, designing, building solutions understood I was there to help them be successful. That what we were trying to avoid, I've seen it happen, is the whole project got canned because legal said, you can't do that. Um the right time to build in privacy is at the beginning and is less expensive than re-engineering it and trying to fix it later. So it's really, I think, becoming important, this concept of privacy engineering, right? That you actually um, start thinking about designing with privacy in mind. Um, ISO recently, and I don't have the number in my head, adopted a privacy by design uh, standard for consumer products. And so that is a really good, you know, thing to be looking at because ultimately when you're um, 
a startup, you want ultimately somebody at some point in time when you have the budget and the wherewithal to do so to stamp, you know, that you're good. Um, you know, this is going to create confidence ultimately for consumers. So there are strategies you can employ without breaking the bank, I think, to make sure that you are, you know, again, not building on a house on sand. Mm -hmm. And then how, you know, what's your advice for individuals and organizations to kind of stay up to date on the latest developments in around Canadian privacy? It, it sounds like there's a, a lot of moving parts. It's pretty complicated. There's a lot of things going on. There's a federal, the provincial level, plus other things that are in, in the mix. You know, where, where does someone kind of even start to navigate all this? Well, I, I co-teach uh, a course at the University of Toronto in the School of Continuing Studies, and we have to explain, given the reading volume that we assign to people, guess what? This is now part of your life, right? We're always in privacy reading, going to conferences, try, trying to stay current on all of these changes that are happening internationally. And I think that, you know, to, co to complicate your point even further, um, you can't ignore what's happening, for instance, in Europe. And, you know, because it is now um, becoming part of the conceptual framework, not just in Canada, but in the United States. How do we understand risk? How do we understand um, how technology should be governed? So I, I don't have a good answer for you because I spend all my time reading. <laughs> I mean, I belong to the International Association of Privacy Professionals. That's a great organization. I teach the certifications as well there. And they have great trackers, you know, for, you know, say state legislation. Here's an infographic of all the U.S. states that are currently have or are considering, you know, privacy bills. Um, so there's lots of good resources there. Um, you can. There are other subscriptions that are available through some uh, private sector companies that do research um, and provide summaries in terms of the impacts of law, cases, and so on. Um, so, you know, again, these are not, you know, necessarily uh, low-budget items or appropriate for maybe, you know, uh, startups. But certainly the IAPP is a great start. And that's IAPP.org. Not that I'm pushing them or anything. And, um, but... The, you know, it is um, always going to be a bit of a challenge. And partly it's also making sure you have the right counsel. And I mean that broadly, not just, you know, lawyer. Because um, I would say that one of the other challenges right now, and we, that we saw this happen in Europe when GDPR came into effect, there was not a lot of people with background in privacy available to do the work that needs to be done. And that's going to continue to be a problem. So, it may be investing in your own people to make sure that they get that education um, and, you know, maybe the, you know, get the certifications again through the organizations that, you know, that I've mentioned um, to make sure that, um, you know, because the other, I'll say the other challenge, you know, PIA developed under a waterfall methodology, right? You come to a gate, you'll sit down with the lawyers or the privacy office and say, okay, you know, what are we doing here? You know, what risks have we created? And as you go through the development life cycle, you'll have those gates. But is the waterfall common anymore? No, it's always agile, right? So when you have to, in each iteration, make sure that the privacy requirements are met, that means you need somebody on the team who actually understands them, right? You need to, or you need to have thought out very clearly at the beginning what it is, you're, what the requirements are going to be probably both. 
So you're going to have to, you know, keep that in mind that, you know, this is, you know, really got to be uh, part of the architecture. And instilling the requirements is going to be essential from the beginning. And it requires some knowledge up front. Um, the good thing is about many privacy laws, there are differences, like California has do not sell. There's going to be nuances in Canadian law that, you know, don't exist potentially elsewhere. But for the most part, what do you need? Make sure you have consent. You can explain what information you're gathering and why that you can get rid of it. I think that's one of the biggest issues I see is that nobody actually, I, I, I was speaking at a conference in London and I asked everybody, you know, do you have a, re a records retention policy? And everyone stuck up their hand. And then I said, how many of you actually comply with it? I got the best laugh of the conference. No one gets rid of data. And this is a problem. This is going to be a severe problem because remember I mentioned, you know, data subject requests or a pen test. Why do you still have this data from 20 years ago about me? You know, that's going to be a hard question to answer. You know, I got into privacy from, you know, IT. I was doing IT consulting, mostly in the legal sector. But, you know, what I realized early on was poor information governance yields poor privacy. And this is, I think, one of the essential problems we have in this part of the 21st century is we call it, we say we live in the information age, but we're terrible at managing information as an asset. We don't, you know, like a very smart fellow that I worked with analogized this to a fleet of buses, right? If you have a fleet of buses, you know where the bus is mostly any time. You know who's driving it. You know it's you know maintenance schedule, you know it's depreciated value, and you know where it's locked up at night. We don't know that sort of thing about data typically, because it's electrons. We don't associate the same value. So I think that the essence of the problem is that we are not good managers of information assets in general, and you see this coming out most obviously in the area of privacy. The reason that GDPR was such a challenge for companies is because it said you have to know where the data is flowing. Why is that so hard? Well, because no one's done it. They, they, they have ideas about how the information is flowing, but it's apocrypha. You know what apocrypha is? Apocrypha is a term used, there were you know books that were rejected as not being part of the Bible because they were nice stories, but they couldn't be found to have any sort of authenticity or they were not canonical. That's, that's what literally it. And so uh, what you get often from, you know, people, well-meaning people is apocrypha or fairy tales about the way data is flowing, who can see it, how it's being shared, you know, that sort of thing. But poor information governance, poor privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you you uh, mentioned something there that I think is really important, something that we've talked about a few times on the show, and, I, and it's often something that I talk about when I do public speaking, is we've essentially assigned sort of the same value in, in the digital world to all data. So people data, application data, it's all just zeros and ones, and it's all the same value. And that's why these things are so difficult at this point, because you can't distinguish between uh, data that's about a click on a web page and data that's actually something that could be identifying an individual and you know if it falls in the wrong hands could be used to harm that person and, and it's a hard question to value data because the data 
uh, my record in Facebook's hands has a certain value as a part of, you know, an aggregate. I couldn't monetize it in the same way. But it's not that same data is going to be different in the hands of a bank and it's going to be different in the hands of a retailer. And so what we have today is um, this bucket called, you know, goodwill, which is where all of that value of data is supposed to be expressed. And we know for many organizations that the physical assets don't matter beans, that it's all intellectual property. It's all, you know, um, you know, personal data that gives that organization its value. And yet we still don't know how to value and protect information. And, and like I said, I think this ties directly back to uh, what startups need to think about is if this actually has data, what does it mean in our hands? And how am I valuing it? Am I protecting it appropriate to the value that it has? And also to the legal responsibilities I have to the individuals? Because again, we can't forget this in Canada, you know, personal information is the subject of rights by individuals. In you know, Europe, it's considered a human right. So you can't view it solely through the lens of an asset, but it is the principal asset for many organizations. And yet, and 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 frankly, what you know, I, I've said, I think that this is um, an example of um, people writing checks they can't cash. They they are doing things with you know, if if data was dollars, they'd be fired for handling it the way they do. And, you know, so this is, I think, a, a direct outcome from our lack of ability to understand the value of data and then treat it appropriately. Um, you know, you can diminish the value of the things that you have in your hands, losing it, having it corrupted. And, but more importantly, today, when we look at what the impact of, you know, the changes in legislation that are coming into effect in this country, the ability of individuals to say, Delete it, please. Right? And if you don't have a legal obligation to retain that information, you have to comply. So this is where I think organizations are also going to have to do a lot more to earn the trust of individuals to warrant that they can keep the information. That, you know, there's a value, you know, that the individual sees in doing so. Um, and so I, I think that the equation is going to have to change. Um, AI has introduced a whole new set of concerns and, and, and issues. But I think equally, um, if you want to use data richly, you have to be able to warrant you know, to both individuals and to government, um, you're using it well. Yeah, and I think, uh, Constantine, thanks so much for, for being here. I think that's a good place to, to leave it. You, uh, It's always great to talk to uh, a fellow Canadian, but uh, I also learned a ton, ton. I think anybody listening to this has probably learned a lot. It's such a complicated space, to, and there's so much to understand. We're really only scratching the surface here, so... Hopefully, if you're listening, this you know was a was a um, you know an appetizer for the main meal of uh, Canadian data privacy regulations and beyond. But thanks so much and cheers. Thank you.